Let me opine to you. I religiously eat chicken nuggets every Saturday, 20 nuggets, and I will have you know nothing. 20 nuggets every Saturday? Nothing brings me more joy. Do you eat anything else with them? Like, no, I eat them dry, no sauce. No, are you serious? Welcome back to the Moon Weekly. It is week five of spring quarter. I'm Austin. I'm Quinn. And I'm Miles. In this episode, we'll have a discussion with student government president Calvin Cottrell and an interview with Kim Smith from UChicago's Crime Lab. Our first segment this week comes from reporters Grace Houck and Caitlin Tien, and they were talking with student government president Calvin Cottrell. So they spoke to him about his time as the student government president, as well as how to vote in upcoming student government elections, and Cottrell's recent proposed student government resolution regarding changes to UCPD policy. I'm Grace Houck, Maroon reporter, here with Calvin Cottrell. And Caitlin Tien. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like what year, what you're studying, and a little bit about what SG is and what you guys do? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Again, my name is Calvin Cottrell. I'm a fourth year in the college this year, majoring in political science, and I'm student body president. So SG, student government, has a budget of $2.1 million this year that we use to support every RSO on campus, large student initiatives, um, I have some discretionary funds that I use to support programming here, and it's also... And that's within the 2.1 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's um, rollover from past years goes into a discretionary fund mm-hmm. that my executive slate, it's me and two VPs, gets, gets to use. Um, but besides the funding piece, which is a lot of our work, we're also one of the main connections between students and administrators. So um, lots of behind-the-scenes meeting with administrators talking about problems that students have lots of constituent services, so if people come to me and they're like, I'm having a problem with this, um, I either often know the people who work in that office or know who to ask in order to try to get things moving, and that's another large part of the work. Um, but in general, student government is the representative body of both undergrads and graduate students here at the University of Chicago. And for listeners who maybe don't know, can you kind of outline what the structure of that body looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So. There's two large branches of student government, um, roughly analogous to a legislative branch and an executive branch. The legislative branch has two chambers, I guess, to it, of 17 members each. So there's a college council, which represents all of the undergraduates, and there's a graduate council, which has representatives from the various divisions of the graduate programs here at the University of Chicago. In my capacity as president, I oversee the executive branch. So that's carrying out the programming that gets funded through our budget. That's a lot of the constituent service work that I was talking about before. And it's also planning our own initiatives in order to try to move the ball on some of these large systemic campus issues. Great. And so for the college council component, mm-hmm. you have undergraduate representatives for each class, yes. right? So about how many do you have for each class? Yeah, so each of the four undergraduate classes has four representatives. So the rules depend a little bit um, based on academic class, but there's at least four members, and it's the top four vote-getters from their year. Sometimes that means people are getting majorities of the vote. Um, sometimes that doesn't always happen, but that's how we kind of we down some pretty large fields of candidates, particularly for younger classes. Um, and as a college council, they have a chair. So the 16 of them get elected. Um, they then pick a chair. And the chair, because they don't always get to vote, their class gets another representative. 
So that's how you get to the 17. Okay. And that one of the classes will have five reps. And that could be any class. Mm-hmm. And that could be any class. So this year it happens to be the second year class, but in the past it's been the third or the fourth years. It really just depends on who steps up to the plate in order to be college council chair and who has the support of their other members. And so when will students be voting on this, and what does that process look like? Yeah, so the spring elections are coming up. It's election time. I'm sure everyone can feel it in the air. And We've all seen the, the Facebook photos and cover photos. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As soon as spring actually comes, I'm sure those, there will be lots of chalking as well. But um, right now, petitions were already due, so the candidates have been announced, and over the next upcoming weeks, people are going to be campaigning to their classes, or depending on the role, will be campaigning to the entire school. Um, that election season is about three weeks. I don't have the um, calendar right in front of me. Um, but the process for that is it's actually an online vote. So we try to make it very easy to vote. Um, so that way, as many students' voices can be heard as possible. So it's an online vote. The ballot looks slightly different depending on the class and the division that you're in, but it's all automatic. And Is there a write-in option at all? Yeah, so there is a write-in option. Some of the positions actually don't have as many qualified candidates on the ballot as there are positions, so some write-ins will win this year. Hmm. Um, some people so are... So which positions are those for? So um, the... The f- rising fourth year and rising third year classes, so like the current third and second year classes, will have write-ins that become the college council reps. Um, and what does that look like on the back end? Say if I have a friend who's just like goofing off and writes in my mm-hmm. name, you know, or Kate, one of your friends, does that rep then have to accept the position? Or is there a discussion amongst current SG? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the way that that works, and we have an entire separate election and rules committee, so... I'm sure we'll be participating in the campaigning coming up, but we have a whole separate independent body that um, makes sure that candidates are aware of these rules and adjudicates if there's any potential violations to that. But And that's a student body. Mm-hmm, and that's a student body appointed by student government. There's um, open, open applications every year. Um, the assembly, which is when the graduates and the undergraduates get together, they're the body that decides um, who gets appointed to that. So I nominate... They then um, approve, get approved or denied, advise and consent, I guess, from the assembly. And So how many students are on that board? That board is, I believe, there's one chair, I believe it's five, okay. including a chair, is my belief. Um, but I really have to say our election and rules committee is really top-notch. Max Friedman, who's been the head of that for years now and is also the SQ parliamentarian, has been overseeing that, and they do a really good job of making sure everyone's aware of the rules. On the back end, to get to your original question, whoever gets the most write-in votes will get offered the seat first. They will have some time to um, either accept or turn it down, and then we just keep going down the list until enough qualified candidates fill that class. And so the upcoming elections aren't just for the class representatives, right? What else are people going to be voting on? Yeah, so people will be voting on your class or division representatives as long as, as well as some other positions in the executive branch. So there is the executive slate, which includes president and two VPs, a VP of administration, which is analogous to student government CFO, right. who's currently Sabine now. Sabine, okay. Yes. Um, 
And the other VP is the VP of Student Life, which is Chase Harrison, and they oversee some of the more thematic and issue area committees that we run, such as sustainability or sexual assault awareness and prevention. Um, Other positions on the executive side that people could be voting for include the community and government liaison, which is a designated post within student government whose job is to build relationships between the U Chicago student body and the broader Chicagoland area, um, mm-hmm. like civic culture. Who currently holds that role? Yeah, currently that's Emily Harwell, um, who is... So your roommate? Yes, who is my roommate. <laughs> um, SG, SG connections run deep um, in my Kenwood apartment. But um, And then the other positions that people will be voting on on the executive side are the liaisons to the Board of Trustees. So there's a grad liaison to the Board of Trustees, an undergrad liaison as well, and they help facilitate meetings between students and Board of Trustees members. There's one meeting a quarter, the liaisons get to decide the theme of that meeting or like set the agenda, Um, and it's a really good opportunity for students to meet with Board of Trustees members, talk about like really large systemic issues here on campus, because that's the sort of 10,000 foot level that trustees are looking at the University of Chicago at, and they do a really great job of building those connections. So last year I ran along with Chase Harrison and Sabine Now as the Rise Slate. We ran on a two-plank platform, really, to focus on diversity and inclusion efforts here at the university and mental health services. So the diversity and inclusion part comes from all three of our backgrounds. So um, I currently am an intern at the Center for Identity and Inclusion. I've worked there for years. So I see some of the issues that students of color in particular are facing on this campus. Um, Chase Harrison has been very involved with Halal. There's been issues around anti-Semitism and other problems, sometimes in SG, that have come to light. And Sabine Noh is also really involved with these sorts of issues. Um, the campus climate survey that came out, I believe, last year was when the results of that came out, showed that there were that there are some pretty large issues with campus climate, in particular to how Black students feel on this campus, trans students feel on this campus, and low-income students feel on this campus. So we wanted to make sure that SQ was really devoting lots of its time and resources around that. The other plank was mental health services. People felt that there wasn't adequate services here on campus. People felt they didn't know how to go, they didn't know where to go. And in general, the campus climate, I would also argue the quarter system, makes it really hard for students here. So we also really wanted to focus on that. With those two planks in mind, when we came in, we decided we were going to make some big investments from our discretionary funds in those areas. So the first thing we did is we finished out the fundraising for the Monumental Women's Project. Um, It's a really great project here on campus. It built the first statue of a woman here on campus. It's currently in the Reynolds Club. It's of Dr. Georgiana Simpson, a black woman who got her PhD in German philology, I believe. Um, at a time when she wasn't allowed in the dorms because she was kicked out by the university president at the time of those dorms because she was black. Um, But she finished her PhD by mail and letter, and it's a really amazing story about how um, overcoming barriers in academia can allow for lots of new representation. And that was a project kind of spearheaded by several undergraduates, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so several undergraduates who were actually involved in student government when the idea first came to fruition. 
um, spearheaded that. That was our big investment on the diversity piece. On the mental health side of it, we started and piloted a new program called The Life of the Nourished Mind. So we had a packed day of over 15 workshops that included four university offices, brought in three Chicagoland area partners, and had over like 90 students in attendance, even though we got 10 inches of snow. So I'd like <laughs> to put that out. Um, so we had this whole entire workshop slash um, symposium day about student mental health. So we brought in administrators for people to talk to so they could just learn the basics, the one-on-one of what mental health resources we have here. We brought in faculty to talk about their research. We had a keynote speaker, um, John Moe, who is the host of the most popular mental health podcast in the country. So that was a really big thing that my slate, the three of us, did in a big investment. So besides just making sure that everything's running the way that SG is supposed to, we've made sure that there's new programming on both of those pieces. What were some of the most challenging parts of working as student government president? This position is both really interesting and incredibly frustrating because I have lots of influence and little power. Particularly on the money side, this is a position in student government as a body on campus that can have lots of money, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can just buy our way out of problems or we can just will programs into existence. One thing that I've really prioritized this year, my entire slate has, is building the connections on campus that are necessary to make sure that when student voices need to be heard, we know where to go. There's been lots of really good work that has happened um, that we could only really get done because we had those relationships. For example, the life of the nourished mind. If I hadn't spent two quarters building the relationships with health promotion and wellness, student counseling services, um, spiritual life, for example, I would have never have gotten all of those offices to do programming on the same day. So it, we were only able to pull off some of our really large initiatives because we put in the time to make sure students were well, well represented. And now as you come to the end of your term, mm-hmm. looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently? I think outreach is something that definitely student government can do more. In my position now, there's so many things that have to happen on the day-to-day that outreach is the president's role, but it can't be one of the main jobs. That being said, um, I do think students have been well represented by student government this year, and I think my slate has done a really good job of focusing on the issue areas that people are really talking about on campus. Unfortunately, mental health has become more salient in the last couple of weeks than it was before, but there were underlying issues before that were pretty systemic. So I'm happy that we've been talking about real issues and been trying to really dig in and make concrete changes for students. Some other issues that have come up, you know, over the past year, free speech on campus, of course. Mm-hmm. I think the last time I saw you was at the Zingales Town Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we speak right now, Chase has been actively working on the Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So I wonder if you could maybe speak to some other things that have been going on this year that you've been involved with through SG. Yeah, I think all of those things that you listed are really great examples of why having strong administrator relationships is important. What I can say is when crises have popped up on this campus, because I've had those strong relationships, students have been well represented. So when Steve Bannon was invited, for example, there was a small invite-only meeting with professors in Gales that had some student government representatives from my slate and some student leaders from groups that voiced lots of opposition to him coming. And 
the idea to have a town hall grew from that. I was in a unique position in order to like facilitate that town hall. And because I had those relationships, I was able to make sure that students could have a really productive conversation with that professor. Okay, so first of all, thanks for organizing this. I'm, I'm very happy to have a chance to talk and, and discuss with you. I think that uh, one of, uh, I hope of the benefits of this is more interaction and more learning. And uh, this is, I mean, in, uh, in both direction. I'm, I'm here to learn uh, your feelings and, uh, uh, and explain my, my reasons. I think having student voices and having that town hall really changed the professor's thinking on how to structure a good event. Um, in my role, I didn't have the power to cancel it, nor do I think I should have. When it comes to the free speech town hall, for example, Chase Harrison spent over a year building the relationships and doing the SG groundwork in order to make sure that that happened. As I understand, uh, these, this university's commitment to freedom of speech, it's about more than simply speech. It's about truth finding. It's about rigorous analysis and rigorous intent so that we can bring the best out of each other. And to do that, Freedom of information is also essential to that commitment to free speech as the college has communicated to me so many times. To that end, why is the UCPD use of force policy not public and when are you planning to make it public? Um, I don't know that it's public or not, so... I check it's not. Okay. Uh, when we can uh, take a look at that? When? Take a look at it and, uh, and respond. I think your questions are a good one. Thank you. Thank you so much for making my questions good. The reason that that town hall was limited to undergraduates is because that event came about because College Council passed a resolution about it. Chase Harrison met with administrators beforehand, wrote a resolution, followed up on it, and then on the sexual assault and prevention piece, we've been doing a lot to make sure there's a really robust month around that. And you're not quite done yet because last night you presented another resolution to College Council. Mm -hmm. Could you tell listeners a bit about what that was and why you presented it? Yeah, so as I'm sure most listeners are aware, there was a pretty tragic incident a few weeks ago now where a student was shot by a UCPD officer. Not all the details about that incident have been released. I don't think we know exactly what happened yet, though body cam footage has been released and there's been lots of campus discussion about it. I think SG, as the representative forum of all students on this campus, really has the responsibility to take stands about what community safety looks like and to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. I presented a resolution in draft form to College Council yesterday that included calling on the university to release police protocols, to change up the makeup of citizen review boards for the UCPD, as well, and to also also doubling down on our call for more commitments to mental health services. I and think I wonder if you could speak a bit about what that review board currently looks like. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the IRC, the Internal Review Committee of the UCPD, the U Chicago Police Department, is a review board of citizen complaints. So my understanding, and I'm not an expert on UCPD, is that this review board, when when citizens who feel that they've had a bad interaction with police or feel as if some sort of like rules or laws were broken, they can offer up complaints to the UCPD. Those citizen complaints then go to this board, which is made up of staff representatives, student representatives, and community representatives about an equal measure. 
um, the makeup of the board, and that board reviews those complaints, can pass those complaints on if they feel that there was like malfeasance or wrongdoing, and at the end of the year, they write reports that they then pass off to the provost's office and reports that aren't necessarily public about any reviews of pro- protocols that might have to happen, any general recommendations that they have for the police force. The makeup of the IRC has been something that student activists have brought up before. I think in many ways it makes sense that the IRC and the makeup of it should reflect the communities that UCPD is policing. So if the vast majority of people in the boundaries of UCPD are people who are not directly affiliated with the university, I think it makes a lot of sense from relative transparency and just a fairness standpoint to have that body be made up of more community members than it is now. And that piece was included in the resolution. And do you think that the IRC um, report should also be made public, the ones that are given to the provost? Yeah, so one thing I don't know is the privacy rules around UCPD. I think that more transparency around policing, particularly in a city where policing is such a salient issue, makes a lot of sense. I really have to commend the university with how fast they released the body cam footage, and that transparency went a long way to assailing some students' fears and to also just provide more context for our conversations around policing. And I think as much transparency as they could have around those reports would allow us to feel even more at ease. And there was also a question at the meeting last night Mm -hmm. about um, mental health training. Can you speak at all to UCPD mental health training? Yeah, so again, I'm not an expert. I've had a brief conversation with the VP of of Safety, um, Eric Heath, about training. My understanding is the vast, vast, vast majority of UCPD officers have best practice mental health training, something that is not true of most police forces here in the state. Whether that's enough, I don't know. Like I said, as a person who's not an expert in policing, I want there to be a lot more transparency. Having more information on the UCPD will give students, community members, faculty, staff, all the information that they need in order to know what are the best right steps. But this sort of veil of ignorance, this like shroud that's over the UCPD, makes it hard for us to make informed asks. And so a lot of this resolution, as you've been mentioning, is about transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, some student groups have outright advocated the complete dissolution of UCPD, um, but that's not something that you're proposing right now at the moment, correct? Yeah, no, that's not in this resolution. Okay. Is that something that you would consider in the future? So I think there's tons of conversations we still need to be having about policing and the UCPD in general. One thing I will say is I'm looking to write a resolution that can get as close to a unanimous vote as possible. When students speak with one voice and when we're not infighting amongst ourselves, we get a lot more done. I'm not sure if the sorts of resolutions or open letters that some student groups have written would pass through assembly, but I'm certain that this resolution that I've written is impactful, would move the ball on helping and protecting students, and is the right next step to try to move on and do better after this incident. So what are the next steps for this resolution in particular? Mm-hmm. What does the, the rest of the drafting and passage process look like? Yeah, so the draft is pretty much done. I think after some of the conversations that I had, there may be amendments to it, but not too many is my understanding. Um, if students wanted to find that draft, where could they see mm-hmm. it? Yeah, so I know it's been posted briefly, or it's been posted by some of the CC reps. I think 
it is still draft language, so that's why um, it hasn't been posted everywhere. But if students are curious, I, I can put it on the SG website. What advice would you have for the, the next slate, and will you be endorsing a particular slate? Advice that I would have for the next slate is to really take the time to do some strategic planning. I don't think people really realize how large of a role being SQ president is. I was kind of thrown into managing seven standing committees having to make sure that there are 32 legislative members that are up to date on what's happening and being thrown into having like really high level meetings. For example, as president and some of the members of the executive committee are also in on those. I'm one of the few students that gets to meet Zimmer several times a year. I've had several meetings with the provost, for example. So I would take the time to do some strategic planning and have some really big goals for what you want for the year. Um, when it comes to endorsements, I think that the Unite slate of Sat Gupta, Natalie Jusko, and Malay Trivedi stands head, shoulders, and antlers above Moose Party, I think. Um, this really is a very real position where we're talking about real money, real impacts to student life. And after having the pleasure to work closely, particularly with Sot, but also with Malay Trivedi, I'm really excited to see what that slate is going to do in the future. And Sot and Malay are both on college council right now. Yeah, so Sot is currently the college council chair. So he's gotten a taste and has been able to sit in on some of the meetings that I mentioned before. And Malay Trivedi is truly a star on college council. He is a first year, but within his first week, he was planning large fundraisers on campus. There's already talk of a third plus school Title IX conference that he's helping to plan. If I'm, anyone wants more information on that, I actually talked to Malay about that, I think, late last week, so there's an article on our website about that. Yeah, and um, I've only heard really great things about Natalie. I don't know her personally, but I'm really excited to see where that slate goes and to see how they kind of grow into the role. Something that I tell particularly U Chicago students all the time is there's actually a lot to be hopeful for. All of my conversations with administrators often is this two-step where they're like, there's lots we have to improve on, but here's the improvements we've made in the past four years. I think even in my time here, because of the advocacy and activism of lots of students, we've seen really meaningful changes on things like mental health, on access to resources. There's a really large diversity and inclusion strategic plan that I've been really involved in helping to carry out and doing some of the back work of giving out grants and things for. So I think this is a really great time for students to like lean in and start participating and really make sure that these changes get accelerated. Great. All right. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for all of your work for us too. After this interview, Calvin Cottrell informed the Maroon that student government won't be considering the UCPD resolution tonight due to a scheduled vote on budgeting. Thanks again to Calvin and our reporters, Grace and Caitlin. Austin, your segment is up next. Yes, I got to sit down with Kim Smith, Senior Research Manager at the UChicago Crime Lab. And what do you guys talk about? So we talked about the Crime Lab's role, some research they've done in the past, and Crime Lab's also been in the news a lot lately with some high-dollar donations from big names like Kenneth Griffin. 
So we also talked about what those donations are doing for the crime lab and their work with the CPD currently. To get started, I know a lot of students on campus have heard of Crime Lab, but I don't think all that many have an idea of what you guys do. So could you give us a rundown of what kind of research you're involved in, what organizations you guys partner with, just what is Crime Lab? Yeah, so the University of Chicago Crime Lab, we were founded in 2008, so 10 years ago, to partner with city agencies in Chicago um, and other local nonprofits to really design and test promising ways to reduce uh, crime and improve human lives. Um, we focus on the most important criminal justice challenges. Uh, we um, are trying to prevent crime and violence from happening in the first place, improve schooling and income opportunities for those living in communities impacted by violence, and also reduce the harms associated with the administration of the criminal justice system. And I think um, something that often trips people up. We're not a crime lab in the forensic sense, so we're not yeah. running any DNA or doing anything really affiliated with the hard sciences. We're really a social science um, research lab affiliated with the University of Chicago. You mentioned that Crime Lab was founded in 2008. The lab has been making headlines recently with a lot of high-dollar donations and your work with recent CPD efforts. But could you take us back and maybe give us examples of some other research you've done in the past that students may be familiar with? Yeah, one of our first projects that I think people may be familiar with um, is a project um, that was designed by a nonprofit called Youth Guidance. It's called Becoming a Man. And the crime lab um, has been partnering with Youth Guidance uh, for the past few years to really study the impact of this program. Um, Becoming a Man, uh, it's, it's a program that's designed to prevent the sort of impulsive and automatic behavior that drives much of the violence um, in American cities. So the Crime Lab study of BAM was structured um, kind of like an RCT, the gold standard evidence in medicine, um, and we found that BAM participation reduced violent crime arrests by about 50%. Um, the, this you know, this work and the study led the city of Chicago to make BAM a key component of their violence reduction efforts, and the program was also a key inspiration for President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative. Um, so that's an example of some of the work I think people might um, most closely associate with the University of Chicago Crime Lab. I think that's really interesting because I think most people, when they hear the name Crime Lab, they picture you guys doing work with CPD, um, hard-hitting things on policing efforts. But it seems that you guys are really working across a spectrum, not just with police, but also on hitting the root of crime and what's causing crime. Exactly. And I think a key aspect of the crime lab when we were found, our faculty director, Jens Ludwig, identified that, you know, there isn't um, – uh, a lack of really innovative nonprofit and um, even city agencies operating in Chicago. There are a lot of really interesting programs that hold promise to really serve um, youth who are living in these more violent areas. Um, what we thought the Crime Lab's value add could be is to partner with these agencies and these nonprofits to uh, study and rigorously test. Uh, the impact of these programs. So bringing in um, what UChicago is known for, academic rigor, and really, you know, testing ideas, um, partnering with those already working in the space. And another example of one of these programs, we do a lot of work with Chicago Public Schools 
We've been working with Chicago, um, Saga Innovations and Chicago Public Schools to also generate really strong evidence about um, a new approach to academic remediation. Um, so it's daily individualized tutoring during the school day. And this research um, similarly has helped redirect millions of uh, federal Title I funding in Chicago um, and is an example of um, pairing, you know, innovative service providers with academics to really understand how we can get the biggest um, bang for our buck regarding um, both education and um, violence reduction programs. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys do work in other cities as well, right? I believe you have a lab in New York and have done research in other areas. Most of our work is um, based in Chicago, but we do have a smaller group of researchers um, located in New York. Our office is called Crime Lab New York, and we are partnering there with the um, public school and police department systems as we are here to study similar um, similar interventions and even apply some of the learnings from Chicago to New York to identify whether mechanisms or even results hold up across cities. So like you touched on there, most of your major work is involved in Chicago. Now in 2016, when Chicago experienced its deadliest year in history, Mayor Rahm Emanuel and leaders across the city were searching for solutions to this problem. And they landed upon employing new policing methods such as predictive policing and implementing these things called strategic decision support centers. When they announced that, you guys were called to help them implement these solutions as well as conduct research on their effectiveness. And now, given high dollar donations from both Kenneth Griffin and the Chicago Sports Alliance, you guys continue to be in the news involving your work with SDSCs. So could you touch on what is predictive policing and what work do you guys do with CPD? So I'll answer your first question first, yeah. or your second question first. Yeah. Um, our involvement with the Strategic Decision Support Centers, SDSC for short, is really to provide analytic support to CPD commanders who are um, faced every day with decisions about how best to allocate their resources. So taking a step back, um, Chicago's police districts are essentially the size of small cities between, you know, 70 and 90,000 residents and several tens of square miles large. Um, if you consider the amount of, uh, you know, um, conflict and even violence that occurs, it really is important that commanders understand precisely where are issues um, flaring up and then how can I best address that? And if, you know, if that doesn't work, why didn't it work? How can we evaluate that um, constantly? So the University of Chicago Crime Lab came in in February 2017 to really help district commanders make these decisions. Um, and what we're doing, you know, the crime lab analysts who are working with these district commanders embedded in the SDSCs, we are looking at data that the police department has collected, very similar to what um, is available on, uh, for example, the Chicago Open Data Portal, and we're trying to identify patterns and trends. So looking at whether stolen cars, for example, are being stolen in one place but being recovered in a very small block radius of something significant, or identifying patterns of robberies that may be happening around CTA stations. Um, we're presenting these results the results of these analysis to commanders and then, um, you know, working with them to identify different evaluation strategies. Um, in terms of the department's implementation of additional technology through the SDSCs, they have rolled out um, ShotSpotter, which is a network of sensors set up around um, various city 
um, various parts of the city to determine um, where and how many rounds of gunfire go off. Um, they've also um, added mobile phones to um, the district um, personnel who are working in the SCSCs and also rolled out Hunch Lab, which is a predictive policing software, um, which was developed by a company um, based out of Philadelphia, Xavier. Um, and that, uh, you know, we have been involved with the process of trying to both, you know, identify um, what patterns have existed and then evaluate the strategies. But um, the predictive policing software, while I think has probably gotten um, a lot of attention, is not uh, something that the crime lab is specifically involved with. So does crime lab have employees stationed both inside SDSCs across the city as well as analytics support? at crime lab offices? So we have um, in the past had people embedded in all of the SCSCs. The police department has since hired their own civilian analysts to take over a lot of that work. And the crime lab has been involved with training these analysts and we will continue to for um, the next year or so. Um, but we do also have people who are um, working from the crime lab headquarters uh, trying to build new tools and determine new um, evaluation methodology, uh, in addition to helping to um, identify patterns and trends, we are also uh, performing a rigorous evaluation of the SDSCs to really try to determine, you know, is this having an impact and if so, what might that be? Um, so we have analysts kind of working throughout the city in different capacities on this project. You mentioned there your analytics work into the impact of SDSCs. As I mentioned earlier, the SDSCs were implemented by UCPD in 2017 after the large jump in homicides in 2016. Now, last year, we saw citywide drops in homicide rates, and proponents of the SDSCs said a large part that was due to these new methods by CPD and cited statistics that said, hey, look, in the districts where SDSCs are implemented, their homicides rate outpaced the drop of that of the city. People against SDSCs have mainly said, however, that the spike in 2016 was an anomaly and that the drops of homicide rates across the city was just due to 2016 being an odd year. On your guys' end, given the research you have been doing, how have you guys seen the impact and the success or lack thereof of SDSCs? Yeah, so we are obviously, you know, encouraged by the reductions in violence citywide in 2017 and even, you know, so far in 2018. Um, on our end, we've been working on, as I mentioned, a rigorous evaluation of the SDSCs. So I mentioned, um, you know, RCTs earlier. Um, for several reasons, we weren't able to perform an RCT of the SDSC intervention, but we're doing what we think is our next option, which is using a synthetic control evaluation, um, essentially creating a composite of like districts to uh, determine a counterfactual either shooting or other crime rate. Mm -hmm. um, and the results of the synthetic control evaluation have been really promising. In one district in particular, um, we have been able to identify a causal link between the implementation of the SDSC and a reduction in crime. And then more generally, we've been really encouraged by what we're hearing from both CPD commanders, um, officers, and also uh, individuals who live in these communities who um, can really identify that there is something different happening with the way policing is done in Chicago. And um, we are, you know, just really excited to continue to both 
perform this rigorous evaluation and then also seek additional qualitative evidence from both CPD and community residents to understand uh, what mechanisms are at play and how, if, um, if any, um, the SDSCs are impacting um, uh, outcomes in, in these areas. You mentioned the qualitative feedback from community members in seeing the tangible change in policing methods after the implementation of SDSCs and these new policing methods. Can you give us an idea of what tangible changes and how police officers go through the routine that SDSCs cause? Like, what are these new methods doing and what does it look like in the field? Yeah, so the SDSCs are really um, using... The, identif- the, the SDSCs are trying to take a very precise um, approach to law enforcement. So what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, it's not as if commanders are, as people have said in the past, flooding the zone with officers, and CPD isn't just, you know, hiring thousands of extra officers to um, police these communities. Um, what we're seeing is commanders are taking the information they're receiving from the analysis and even input from community members and using that to really identify um, small locations within the district that could use additional support or where resources from other um, areas could be super beneficial. Um, I think, you know, it's akin to precision precision medicine. Um, We call this precision policing. So really making sure that um, CPD is taking a very um, careful and thoughtful and intentional approach to allocating resources within, um, within these districts. My understanding is that this predictive policing software pulls data from a lot of sources. Could you speak to how nuanced this data is? I've heard things that it pulls data from everything from the weather, time of year, the part of the lunar cycle, if proximity to gas stations and churches, like this seems like a very nuanced approach. Yeah, so I, I can't speak very well to um, exactly the like different nuances and the algorithm that um, the the Hunch Lab software is using, but yeah. um, I can say that I know that within the SDSCs, commanders are taking into account um, information on recent shootings and homicides, armed robberies, um, information from beat meetings, which are forums. Um, in which uh, members of the community speak to um, a community policing sergeant. Uh, commanders are taking into account what their own officers are hearing or seeing, um, what you know uh, they're seeing on the news, upcoming events that might require additional attention. Um, so it's really taking the information and data that is available, um, distilling from that, you know, what is the most important thing to consider when I'm determining where to allocate these resources, and then, um, importantly, collecting follow-up data. So how did this go? What do we need to change in the future? Um, That sort of thing. Moving past SDSCs, what other current projects do you have ongoing? Another project um, that we have ongoing and that's very exciting, we are currently partnering with Heartland Alliance uh, to to evaluate um, an innovative, what we're calling Rapid Employment and Development Initiative, Ready Chicago. Um, it's an intensive transitional jobs and cognitive behavioral therapy program um, that we are designing to uh, reduce violence involvement um, among those at highest risk in Chicago. So it's the first program of its scale. Um, to date, it has reached over 350 men in three community areas. Um, and as I, you know, we just launched, so 
uh, results are still very much forthcoming, but um, some of the early anecdotes we received suggest that it um, has the potential to be truly um, transformative. So that's one of the um, one of the programs that we have ongoing currently that we're very um, excited about. Before we wrap up, are there any last things you'd like to add? Um, I think just that you know we are really excited to continue working on these really important issues. Uh, 2016 was a very difficult year for Chicago, and um, we were really encouraged by the support we received um, to further study um, programs that could reduce uh, both violence and the harms of the criminal justice system. So we're very appreciative for um, both the support we received from um, the philanthropic sector and other donors, and also from the broader um, Chicago community, uh, specifically our partners and community um, partners. So, um, yeah, that's all I would say. Thanks so much for sitting down to talk to me. Is there any way that members of the college who are interested in maybe hearing more about your work or helping out could reach out and contact you guys? Yeah, we are, um, our doors are always open. So if folks want to learn more, um, I encourage them to visit our website. Uh, and um, we can also, you know, answer questions via email. For sale on Marketplace this week, not one, not two, but three different Star Wars LEGO sets in addition to a Game of Thrones risk board. Marketplace is the Maroon's classified page, once operated by Student Govern. Now the Maroon operates it, and you can post LEGOs sublets, furniture, whatever you want on Marketplace. Maybe not whatever you want, but, you know, a lot of things on Marketplace, and people can come in uh, and buy them from you. You can get all of that and tons of more cool stuff, so check it out at marketplace.chicagomaroon.com. Let's get into the news. Charles Thomas was released from the hospital this Wednesday and appeared in court on Thursday. His court appearance was a preliminary criminal hearing where his case was assigned to a judge. Thomas is currently facing three felony charges and two misdemeanor charges relating to property damage and alleged assault of a peace officer. On Friday, students from Kenwood Academy marched across UChicago's campus as part of the National School Walkout and organized a protest to demand care, not cops, from the new Trump Center. So last Monday, the UChicago Secrets Facebook page was shut down. Awesome, what happened? So the admins of UChicago Secrets posted on their sister page, UChicago Crushes, saying, As of April 16, 2018, our beloved sister page, UChicago Secrets, has been forcibly unpublished, zucked, by Facebook. The admins believe that the reason provided was arbitrary and unjust and have appealed the decision. According to the moderators, the post which was flagged for being offensive was regarding the French people and culture. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright spoke at iHouse last Thursday about her new book, Fascism a Warning. After the event, I got some reactions from students about the former Secretary of State. I, I was actually really impressed about how nonpartisan it was um, and how much she emphasized that both sides of the spectrum need to come together to work. She also had like a really big emphasis on like being a centrist and how like that's like a good way to like move forward. She's not a fan of Trump. She uh, mentioned that he felt he was above the law. She mentioned him by name? Uh, yeah, she did mention the president by name um, and said that she believed that he was showing that he felt he was above the law. I don't want to die in a bad mood. <laughs>
we have some awesome events coming up for you this week. On Monday at noon, iHouse will be hosting former Obama Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, who will be talking with David Axelrod. At 7 p.m. on April 28th, Rockefeller Chapel will be hosting a Meeting of Two Seas 2.0, a showcase of music, dancing, and poetry that highlights the rich diversity and intermingling of Hindu and Muslim artistic traditions across South Asia. All right, Austin. Time for the tech fact. So the tech fact this week is about former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, who testified before the House Armed Service Committee on Tuesday. So we talked about Mark Zuckerberg testifying before some congressional committees. Why is Google there now? So Eric Schmidt actually doesn't have a professional position within Google anymore. He was there to discuss with the Armed Service Committee the future of AI in the private tech sector in conjunction with the Department of Defense. This comes off the heel of a series of high-profile outbursts by Silicon Valley employees when their companies were involved with DOD research. Specifically with Google, in March, Google announced they had been working with the DOD and AI to analyze drone imagery, and over 3,000 employees signed a letter protesting the firm's involvement. The importance of this is Eric Schmidt at the event discussed the idea that private companies would be willing to work with the DOD. However, there will need to be an agreement, a set of AI principles guiding morally the private sector's involvement with the DOD. So there's a lot of interesting implications there. All right, this has been the Maroon Weekly for fifth week of spring quarter. Thank you all for listening. I want to thank some people, especially Grace Hout, Caitlin Tian, and Calvin Cottrell for talking about student government. Thanks to Kim Smith for sitting down to talk to me about Crime Lab. And thank you to Ben, Kent, and the entire Logan Cage staff. And as always, Cat- oh, wait, guys, 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 this week, this, uh, so last week we missed this, but it was actually uh, Catherine McDonald's birthday just before. Conspiration? Yeah, just before our last podcast. Wow. So happy birthday, Catherine. All right, that's been our episode. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next Monday. 